on the flight deck. Crews are now manning for the next launch. Time to clear the flight deck and catwalks. Stand well clear of all jet blasts, prop arcs, and exhaust. Time to start up the GO aircraft. Let's start them up. All right, welcome to the F-14 Tomcast. I'm Craig Snyder, call sign Crunch, and I was an F-14 pilot and Top Gun instructor, and I'm one of your two hosts here on the F-14 Tomcast. Today's episode, we're covering Operation Iraqi Freedom, coalition combat operations in Iraq starting in 2003. And I'm Dave Baronic, call sign Bio. I was an F-14 Rio and Top Gun instructor, and I'm your other host for the F-14 Tomcast. You know, similar to our last episode, today we're talking about fairly recent history. Our guests are former F-14 Rio, Doug Denini, call sign Boog, and former F-14 pilot, Keith Kimberly, call sign Grumpy. They flew combat missions in Iraq with VF-2. Gentlemen, welcome to the F-14 Tomcast. Crunch Bio, thanks for uh, having us aboard today. It's been uh, quite the pleasure, and I've really enjoyed the episodes up to today, and it's been great. It's good to see old friends and uh, hear about things you didn't know about and get a lot more on the uh, F-14 than I ever knew before. So it's been great. Same here. It's great. Thanks for inviting us. And I can't wait to uh, talk with Grump, too, and talk with you guys and talk to everybody out there and uh, tell some stories. Yeah, we're awesome. looking forward to hearing this. So, Grumpy, let's start with you. The, uh, the standard question we ask uh, all of our guests, where are you from? How'd you get into naval aviation? And how'd you get into Tomcats? Well, um, if I go back to uh, flying, my, my dad uh, decided he'd spend a little money when I was 10 years old and got to go uh, in a Cessna 150 and sat out on about a five-inch phone book and uh, got my first lesson in flying. And then he took me around to a lot of the air shows, and it was great to see. And then uh, I just kind of flew civilian stuff on and off for, for a period of time. And as I was in college, I was... Uh, blowing my mom and dad's money right and left on uh, flying lessons. And, but at the time I went to Iowa state university to, uh, you know, pursue some athletic activities. And shortly after being there, I realized that professional sports was probably not in my future. So I thought I'd uh, try to find something else out. And I figured, well, flying's a great way to go through. Uh, so I went down and talked to the Navy and joined the ROTC unit and then uh, got commissioned and I was in that time frame where they were taking everybody because I certainly wouldn't got have accepted today. When it yeah, comes what to year? Flying. What so, year did you get commissioned? I was an '89 graduate, and then uh, got picked up for aviation just prior to it, so that was really nice. And then I went down, did the standard uh, training down at Pensacola, went through Whiting Field, and uh, was fortunate enough to get selected to go to Jets, and kind of followed Jungle Jones from there. Went to Beeville, Texas, and. Uh, went through uh, VT26 and 24, and there's some great guys uh, in all those modern COs and everything. And then I was just fortunate enough to get selected uh, West Coast Tomcats, which is kind of what I wanted, uh, my, if nothing else, kind of for the uh, you know Top Gun movie. It sounds like San Diego is a great place, so got to go there. So anyways, uh, graduation in 91, March of 91, there's this uh, little gentleman in the corner. He's kind of got gloves on. His hands look kind of tattered a little bit. His name is Smiling Jack Fetterman. And he says he's uh, Air Pack at the time and says, hey, I got this great thing in San Diego called Boost, the Broad and Opportunity Officer Selection Program. 
uh, for our enlisted people trying to become officers. And I want you to go down there and be my first company officer. Well, there was a 10 month delay from when I got my wings to when class would start. So it kind of fit in. And then I, uh, after doing that for a period of time, went over to 124. And just like you heard from Jungle, um, myself and my class, there was an initial cadre of 10 pilots and 10 Rios that went through the first two D classes that were catching up with DF-11 and 31 as they transitioned to the D and they came from the East Coast uh, on the uh, uh, Forrestal and then came over to uh, the West Coast to be on the Carl Vinson. Anyway, so I was fortunate enough to be in that first cadre. I was in that second class. And just like Jungle said, uh, my class sat in the simulators for probably two or three months, six hours a day, at least playing video games every single day. What, what could be worse for a 23-year-old snot-nosed kid than playing computer games? It was the greatest you know, thing ever. And so we learned quite a bit about the plane and then uh, went through the RAG. Got through that at the end of 92, joined 11. And then um, went through deployment, workup and deployments just uh, with Jungle uh, down there. Jumby Castleton, which you guys had on the last ep episode, was on that uh, first deployment. And let me tell you, it was really nice to fly with somebody like Jumby because he could always take you down a few notches and make you feel comfortable, which, you know, at night uh, on a bad weather day when you're coming aboard the boat, there's nothing better than to have a guy in the back seat, you know, reaching around the corner saying, hey, you want a little Scooby snack? Or, you know, how you doing back there? You're the best ever, you know, kind of pump you up trying to get aboard because, oh, by the way, they want to get aboard and have some dinner, too. So anyways, uh, after I towards the end of my uh, VF11 tour, they had this new program out that nobody knew anything about. And it was uh, called SFTI. And uh, my CAG, CAG uh, Fitzgerald, Lobster Fitzgerald, amazing pilot on, on top of being a great leader. Um he gave me an endorsement, said this would be something good to do. It sounded great. So I went to that first October 95 SFTI class. And now there was a, a power projection class just in front of us that came out as SFTIs. The students did. All the instructors were obviously SFTIs. But the Chaser Keithley, O.B. O'Brien, uh, Mac McMullen, and Lurch Thomas had gone through the course, and they came out as SFTIs. But mine was the first official SFTI class in October of 95. So got through that. And then I went and uh, just went downstairs to the basement of the Top Gun building there in Miramar. And uh, I joined uh, Tomcat Strike Fighter Weapons School Pacific, where we, you know, I, there was just amazing people. This is where, you know, the beginning, like it was before, but now we're really talking about talented people. You know, Chase Keithley, O.B. O'Brien, uh, Keith Taylor, Liz Taylor, Opie Taylor. Um, Mac McMullen. And of course, we got Slammer Richardson that is running the show. So, I mean, you have probably the quintessential leader who not only can talk the talk, but can walk the walk. So I couldn't, I couldn't be any more privileged to be with those guys. And when you look around the room and you know that you're probably the dumbest guy there, you really try to turn up your game to try to meet, you know, <clears throat> just a little bit of the talent that you have around you. So it uh, that disestablishes, unfortunately, with Brack. Uh, we all end up going to Miramar, where I joined Slot Slant uh, Strike Weapons and Tactics School Atlantic. I think you heard PK Averna talk a little bit about that. When I got there, it had kind of started transitioning about a year prior from an A6 weapons school to more now an F14 weapons school as the A6 went away. <clears throat> and 
Now I go from Slammer Richardson to Lung Aquilino, who's in charge. So you go from fantastic and amazing to fantastic and amazing. And, you know, we pick up guys uh, along the way. You know, Gordo McDonald, Sparky Protzman, Troll Patterson. Um, gosh, PK is there. Uh, Bluto Saparito that you heard talk about the missile shoot there on the uh, shot with Jumby uh, the other day. And they were just uh, just an amazing group of people uh, assembled there and really got to do a lot of stuff, which I think we can touch on here and there, what the weapon school was able to do. And then from there, I went to VF2 on my first uh, stint as a uh, training officer. Um, another great group of people, uh, you know, CEOs like Tool Parish and Stewie Stewart and Booger Berger, those kinds of guys that I had kind of in the beginning. I just missed Little Mac as a CEO at that time, which was unfortunate. But so I did that tour and then I went over to 101 as an instructor for about a year and a half uh, at 101. Then I came right back to VF2 as a department head. Um, and then towards the end of the VF2 tour, um, I was lucky and I'm, and can't underscore it enough how lucky I was for Boog to take me over to Lemoore to do the transition to from the F-14D to the uh, Super Hornet because he certainly didn't have to take me over there for the total of three months, which was, that was nice to get the ticket punch. But I can tell you there was some extremely talented people that were every bit as deserving. So from there, I was uh, fortunate enough to then go to the war college and grow my hair long, talk bad about my country and, you know, work half the time. So that was, that was fun at the war college. It was a good way to decompress. And, you know, you're, you're sitting in there and you're like, I'm never going to use any of this stuff. None of it. I'm not going to write papers. I'm not going to do speeches. I could care less about joint. I'm a Tomcat guy. I like to fly airplanes and that's all I'm going to do the rest of my life. So, you know, of course I saw, I thought that too, when I went to Miramar and I wanted to be a 126 bandit driver the rest of my life. But anyways, didn't get to do that. So after the year there, I went down to uh, Air Lant and I worked for Long Aquilino again. So I did F-14 and F-18 uh, EF readiness uh, and helped out with the flying hour program and then transitioned the Navy from TSPAT to what you now know is the uh, master air plan, the MAP, which uh, was kind of fun to kind of get on the ground level of that. And then I was fortunate enough to get selected for command and I did a short stint, uh, almost two years at VMFAT 101 as the XO there. Another fantastic opportunity. And uh, there was a Marine Corps uh, Lieutenant Colonel, became a Colonel, Crew Crusoe, was a Top Gun instructor. Absolutely amazing leader. Um, I wish he had continued in his career. He had other things that he wanted to do, but what an amazing leader he was. And then from there, I went to 147, did the XOCO tour there, transition to the, uh, from the Charlie, from lot 11 Charlies to lot 26 Super Hornets. We were supposed to get lot 31s, but anyways, a, a panel went bad. So we had to, got lot 26, which wasn't too bad. Did uh, a little bit of work there. And then once again, just in the right place at the right time, CNO needs a guy to go to England and be his liaison between CNO and First Sea Lord. Uh, probably Damn, the best, grumpy. best title I've ever heard in my life. So I got to work directly. Not the second, just the first. Yeah, just (laughs) exactly. So anyways, I got to work on their floor plate. They're uh, called the MOD. That's their Pentagon in downtown London. And I was there for four years. And uh, what a great tour that was, an eye-opening. So remember what I did at War College was 
I will never write history papers or papers. I'll never write speeches. I'll never do the joint thing. Well, second week I was in England, I was writing the speech for the assistant chief of the Naval staff. Uh, he was going to the Royal Air Force and speaking. And I'm like, you're kidding me. I'm, I, 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 you want to, you want me to give, write you a speech? I, anyway, so it just snowballed from there. And I was in crazy places doing crazy things, sitting down with the secretary of state for defense in a room by myself talking U.S. issues. And I'm like, I, I don't really need to be here. But anyways, from there, um, I'm going to finish it all off with a tour and a, not a very well known tour and not a very well appreciated tour, but probably one of the best tours I ever had. I got to be the chief of staff of Carrier Strike Group 8. And that was an absolutely amazing tour, probably more for the guys that I worked for than the job in and of itself, because they allowed me to do a lot of the things that, you know, you normally don't do. They kind of treated like a COXO thing. And I worked for Mike Gilday, who's the current CNO of the Navy. So I worked for him. He was my first. And then Pops Batchelder uh, was the uh, next one. And then Woody Horan. I finished it off with Woody Horan, which who I worked for at VF2. He was the officer and I was a training officer. So it was just a full circle thing. And that was the end of it. So it was an amazing ride. How many and years? Probably more so for the people than anything else. And how many years was that? I did 28 years and 2,500 hours in the Tomcat, just under 2,500 in the Hornet and 1,200 traps. Amazing. Pretty spectacular. Yes. It is. It is. Well, Boog, yeah. tell us about where you're from. Grumpy, that was an awesome <laughs> collection. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I'm more than happy to go. I'll do. You want me to do a, a grumpy like, or do you want me just to break it up into chunks? What's best for you? Whatever what you makes like? whatever works for you. Okay, I'm gonna feed. I'm gonna work grumpy into mine as well, like he gr worked into. So I grew up in Arizona, and uh, I was one of these guys when I was 15. I was going to Luke and Willie air shows, and I literally said, "I'm not going to sit behind a desk. I'm going to do that." So I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and I. You applied to the Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, and at the time my eyes were perfect. And I said, you know. If for some reason my eyes go bad, I knew what I thought my perception as a 16, 17 year old was eh, maybe maybe Navy be better for something were to happen. Because if I can't fly medically, maybe I'll try that that submarine thing or the surface. So anyway, went to the Naval Academy. Absolutely uh, hated it. I mean, uh, loved it while I was there. <laughs> Worked hard, hardest four years of my life. Um, I was one of those guys that made the top half, the top half, because I was on the bottom half, made them the top half academically and, and just busted my ass. And when I, when I got out, you know, the, it's interesting, the, the pilot positions go back then all the way to the end of the class, but the NFO ones run out and I was like worried. So I was like, okay, eyes go bad. Can't be a pilot. Now I'm like sweating. Cause I was an aero major and I'm sweating the, uh, the selection and it came down and fortunately got, you know, I'll be blunt. One of the last NFO positions. And I said to myself, you know what? I'm, I want to fly fighters. I'm going to fly fighters. So, you know, I went hardcore uh, down in Pensacola and did, did really well. What happened with NFOs was uh, they did a quality spread. Pilots is different. You had to have jet grades, right? If you didn't have jet grades, you weren't going to go jets. NFOs, they were doing this quality spread where they were taking the top guys in the class, the middle guys and the bottom guys. And the guys who were at the bottom that got fighters, they showed up at like, VF-101, a lot of them didn't make it through. I mean, literally, I could tell you several didn't make it through. Um, went well. I, I was a top guy out of VF-101. Uh, 
got to go right to see via 14. Uh, so the, the joy of being the top guy was you go. And, and as a, the youngest aviator in the air wing did, uh, did some Libya stuff. This is 86. Uh, so I graduated from the OK in 84. August of 86 deployed. America dropped bombs. We did not. But it was, you know, your first cruise kind of keeps you in the Navy, I would say. And it was just a wonderful uh, med cruise. We got to be tactical, got to do some stuff and really flew a lot. So loved it. Uh, Workups next time. Uh, we were actually on the second cruise, another hot uh, Libya event. Uh, we were the sister squad and I was in BF-14, the top headers. Our sister squad of BF-32 shot down uh, the MiGs. So I uh, came out of the rag. Or, sorry, came out of uh, my fleet squadron, did well, uh, gave me two options. Hey, do you want to stick East Coast or the F-124 was going to be getting, uh, was it 350 F-14Ds? Grumpy, what was the number? Yeah, it was It was well north of that when back in 88, 89, it was yeah. 160 some they were going to build. Yeah, so I'm like, holy smokes. I, I you know, grew up, like I said, grew up in Arizona, loved, loved my community on the East Coast. There's two communities that there really was. There was an East Coast and West Coast fighter community. And a lot of people told me, ah, you're going to get lost out there, man. You're not from that. Uh, total BS. Um, great, great transition. Brag instructor. So I'm at VF-124, show up there in August of 89, uh, spend three years there and met wonderful guys coming through like Grumpy. So everybody, I, the great thing about being a RAG instructor is you got to know everybody in that community that came through over the course of three years. And I'll, I'll feed in those, those D students. So yes, I was one of the initial cadre instructors. These guys were superstars coming out of the, uh, coming out of VT. Um, they were the top guys. Uh, there was a multiple number and I don't remember, I won't embarrass Grumpy with his, but you know, I want to say, I think you had like a 220 or higher to get f 14 D pilot. I'm not sure what the Rio number was. Is that something about right Grumpy? Yeah, I mean the the top one was Lurch Thomas with two seventy six. Yeah, he had been the number one guy out of the training command in the last I don't know twenty years or something like that. Yeah. So the cool thing about this is is that I mentioned the the quality spread happens in certain areas. I mentioned it very first F fourteen you know NFO type stuff coming out of the training command, but somebody decided for the D they were only going to put the best initial cadre of JOs meaning guys like Grumpy and Lurch and other guys like that. So these guys show up. They've been studying hard. We're kind of moving from, you know, we're flying in A's, we're flying in D's, uh, never make excuses, but their systems knowledge was awesome. So whenever you got a D flight with a student, like with Grumpy or with Lurch or uh, Jungle or guys like that, it was it was great. It was almost like flying with a fleet guy. It's incredible knowledge. So loved it. Uh, had, had a great three years there, made lifelong friends. Got orders uh, Super JO tour. Oh, I, well, I was at the rag. I went through uh, Top Gun. So my, you know, I didn't do the air. I didn't really want to do the air show thing, uh, but it was offered. Hey, we got two open. So I was uh, one of the first guys to take. Well, it was myself and Thumper Bonner, and it was Red and uh, Gabby. Uh, we took a section of F-14Ds through Top Gun, first time ever. Uh, did not have you know tape D zero one, so not a not a smoking machine. Had some limitations with. Um, the systems, but it was, it was a, it was an awesome, awesome airplane. So we took that through uh, Tom, Tomcat D's through Top Gun on the power projection courses, Grumpy mentioned earlier, and did that in uh, June of 91. Uh, 
So long story short, went back to an A squadron. BF-213 needed me as a Super JO. Wonderful people over there. Uh, did that Super JO tour. And then I came, uh, then I was asked to come back to Top Gun as instructor. Uh, Top Gun instructor from 93 to 95. Uh, phenomenal. We won't talk about all. We're going to talk about OIF. Uh, from there, uh, 213 had had a series of mishaps while I was there. And uh, they wanted to really, this is when the, you know, hey, let's, let's bring in great folks. So we, once again, wonderful people there, great maintenance master chief, Keith Holbert, <laughs> uh, Grace Skipper, XO, I was department head, uh, was, uh, went through uh, about two and a half, two years as a department head of BM213. Uh, during that tour, we transitioned to Oceana. So that was a time, time frame there. That was 95 to 97. So 97, I've been in the cockpit at uh, this time for, uh, you know, 13 years, nonstop, a uh, bunch of hours, bunch of experience. And of course the Navy said, we're going to join you and anoint you. So sent me off to the Pentagon, uh, J-39. I was an action officer uh, in doing special technical operations. And then uh, coming out of that, um, I was screened for command while I was there. But the, uh, the problem is, is there's too many, too, particularly too many Rios uh, to cram into uh, half the squadrons that were there when we started this JO. So they basically said, you gotta, you're done with your joint tour. We want to get you kicked out of there at 22 months. We can put another body in to joint that person. So find something else. So I became a, a legislative fellow for Senator John McCain, which was a pretty magical year on Capitol Hill and did that. And then out of that, I still had more time. And they slated me to VF2, which was phenomenal. Uh, loved, couldn't wait to be a bullet. Still had to kill more time, so they made me chief staff officer of fighter wing. And uh, that's where I met back up with VF2. So Booger Berger is uh, the skipper. Slim Whitson is the XO of VF2. Booger and I were friends. Slim and I were friends. These are all our friends. I knew all the department heads. I knew Grumpy. Um, and so Booger was, I just checked in as CSO, and I'd done cat four syllabus in the D because I'd already had probably four or 500, 600 hours in the airplane. So my first flight in the D, uh, I'll double check the logbook, but I think it was with Grumpy in VF2. And the funny story is, is so I have not flown in the backseat of an airplane in three years, probably whatnot. Um, and they somehow, you know how it works with Cat Forcel, this is like, hey, your, your first D hop, my first D hop was with Grumpy. And I still remember it because it was in a VF2 bird and we're at the hold short and Grumpy goes, all right, I'm all set. You ready to go? And I go, I, I hit instead of the left ICS, I'll hit the right UHF pedal and go, I'm ready if you are. And that's a block on the on the hit board. And, and long story short, I was well behind the airplane. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll, I'll stop it there, except a wonderful tour up to, you know, being uh, took over as XO of VF2. And during... 99% of OIF, I was the XO. It's a long story, but, you know, the way fit rep cycles work, CAG wasn't going to go anywhere until OIF was done. Slim had to wait for his ticket. So I was, it was interesting. I, I took over command of the squadron. It was over, I had over 20 years in the Navy and I had done. And you were just taking command at 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So, let me, so, it, so it to set the stage, so Slim's no, no. the CEO. What's that? Yeah. Say again? Let me get Sorry. the date right. I took over in April of 2003. No, it was 19 years. 19 years and, uh, yeah, it was 19 years. Man, that is unusual. That is, a, that is for the audience, that is incredibly long. Long I, in the tooth. I, I, screen, I screened for command at year 
13 and I waited six years to take over and I did nothing wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> it wasn't meant well, down <laughs> How do you know? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So set the stage here. So Slim's the CEO. You're the XO. Uh, the year now is what? 2003. Is that right? Is well, that where we're Take it right up to 2002, which is when we go on deployment. How's that? So does that sound like a good start? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think uh, starting kind of in a 2002 buildup to OIM, okay. I think it's important kind of backdrop. All right. So, so when did you guys go on deployment? What month in the year? Go ahead, Grump. I've talked a lot. No, no go ahead. Uh, uh, team team uh, sports. September, I'm going to say September of 2002. Yeah, it was, a, it was an eight-month deployment. And we were September. supposed to relieve, relieve Lincoln in the, in the NAG. Okay, so September 2002, you guys are going on deployment, eight-month deployment. Uh, Boog, you're the XO. Grumpy, you're OPSO? I'm Did OPSO, I? yeah. Okay, gotcha. And so, okay, great, great question then. So you're the OPSO leading into this. Obviously, so while this is in 2002, OEF is going down, right? We know yeah. that's happening. And are you guys expecting to partake in that? What are you training for? What What are you What are you building up to during the workup cycle leading up to that deployment? So we're leading up the deployment to be uh, Operation Southern Watch, maybe heavy, in that there's a little bit of activity. You know, you've had Desert Fox that has gone on in the late 90s and in 99, and then you know, there's uh, September 11th that happens. And then, you know, 2002, there's a little bit of we don't like Iraq because they're not letting us in to do the uh, to, to look for nuclear weapon or nuclear material, whatever, uh, to, to make nuclear weapons. So there's a little bit of that going on. So that there's a bit of a buildup uh, in the background. So we're we're, you know, thinking that we're going to do something, but we're just not quite sure what it's going to be. You know, and when we go to Fallon, um, we have tape D03B. Uh, which, you know, it has significant capability. Um, we have did that. Did, did that add, uh, that was a GPS upgrade, if I remember. That was like JDAM or something, wasn't it? No, no. D04 is going to be JDAM that we're going to okay. get while we're on deployment. But we go to Fallon with D03B. And if you, like you guys would know, usually when you go to Fallon, when you leave Fallon, they don't want to change anything because they want you to go into combat with what you know, what you've trained to. So, that kind of sets the table a little bit for what we're going to end up doing in OIF. But in Fallon, we go with tape D03 Bravo and it has some nice enhancements in the radar and the software and uh, air to ground weapons. Um, and we're, you know, we have lantern, we are able to drop it. Boog, I don't think we have PTID in the back of the D Dewey for that cruise. We were just getting, we did, we were we just, did. yeah. So, so Grump, good, good point. And so I'll, I'll throw one thing out to Grumpy and the, and the SWAT slant guys in the mock. So there is, so when I was doing all that short tour stuff, um, those guys were fighting uh, hard for capability for the F-14D. Uh, so that's, that's, I'll just lead with that, that, that there is, so the mindset is, as we all know, the F-14, it's going to go away sometime soon, later. We don't know. Of course, it's 06 is when it goes away. But what's happened is, is the parts consolidation is happening pretty because of the smaller numbers. And the PMA, you know, did some pretty good work and got, we were still getting investment and capability, but it was, was fighting for nickels. And so, so what would happen is guys at Swatsland knew that this is what we needed. And so they really, I thought, did a great job with like the top 10 lists. 
and fought. So, so all that work that was being done in, you know, you mentioned Grumpy and Lung and, you know, all these guys, uh, Tongue, Peterson, uh, brought this capability that finally arrived in our lap, like just in time. Fair enough, Grump, is that the right way to say yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, if we, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far, but, you know, we can. If you go back a little bit, you look at what Hey Joe Parsons and Rat Slade, Devo Dervey, and, and along with Snort are able to get this lantern on the airplane. And it's kind of a prototypical thing. It's kind of off to the side, right? It's kind of on the down low. It's money that we just kind of, we're able to kind of get a little bit to the side. And this is going to be a common theme afterwards. We're going to, we're going to start adding capability to the airplane for, for a dollar. And we're going to turn around and we're going to give uh, the Navy nav air a dollar 50 in return. That's so, a, so after, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. That, that's a perfect analogy. I'm just, I'm just echoing. It's just, it, it's um, that airplane grumpy, keep going, but we'll talk about the capability that F 14 D has. So, yeah. you know, people in DC, uh, both nav air and, and up in the, uh, up in the, ready room uh, there, uh, you could call it N80, N88, and N98, whatever you want to call it. The guys in there, along with Hey Joe and the guys at the PMA, are able to take a look at what the airplane was supposed to have and start trying to trickle some of that with COTS, you know, for the airplane. Uh, fast tactical imagery comes on the airplane, and, you know, this enables us to send information uh, almost real-time BDA type of information. As an example, on the 2001 deployment, uh, we do a 2,200 nautical mile one-way strike on the Kitty Hawk because when the carriers are going to go relieve each other, a lot of times you try to do a sneak attack. So we found out that Kitty Hawk was doing a, a, a steel beach picnic as they were doing crossing the line ceremony. We're on our way to down to um, Hong Kong, and we send two F-14Ds down and – uh, Kobe Lesberg is in the lead airplane. They go over the top of the lantern. They take a picture, practice they drop in a bomb. Um, they data link that 750 nautical miles to somebody as they fly back. And then he data links at 750 nautical miles to the ship. And 10 minutes after they overfly the carrier down 2,200 miles south coming up through Indonesia, we send the uh, strike group commander down there a picture of his steel beat picnic and us putting a bomb right through the middle of it. So, Talk about, you know, that's just talk about capability. You're able to this FTI, you're able to take snap pictures and send it to your wingman. You can send it to a station. You can replay. You can wind back and take a look at the what you just did. So if you weren't quite sure you hit something, you can actually rewind it in the airplane and play it and see if you actually hit it. And then you could send it forward. I mean, you know, BDA was uh, down, you know, wherever the FTI station was, it was always on the carrier unless we were in Fallon. So what's um, FTI? Oh, fast imagery is what it was called. All right, and it was an immense capability. Uh, and I mean, you it was basically a, it was a video data link. Is yeah, the, the, yeah. Okay, so let's yeah. let's okay. So we got the capability stuff. I mean, I want to get into the, the uh, let's let's keep going to uh, to OIF. Okay. Oh. So, anyways, um, as we're building up to go into OIF, we you know we go through Fallon with Tate D 3 Bravo, and then. In the background, you have a lot of stuff going on, hinting that we're going to do something bigger than just Southern Watch. And as uh, we start our deployment in September, you know, in November they they uh, pass a 
um, thing at the UN that says they want to get in there. And that, that kind of really sets the stage for us starting to build up military power. You watch five Corps, the uh, fifth, fifth army is now starting to move into Kuwait. Um, you see the AEF is moving into Al-Udeed and some of their other places. And one MEF uh, or the first uh, Marine Corps division is starting to move into Kuwait also at the end of the year. And, you know, so we're definitely thinking something big is going to happen. At the same time, as we start coming in to theater uh, to relieve Lincoln, they're going to go down to um, uh, uh, they're going to go down to Australia, Perth, Australia, and north of there. Um, they're going to do flight ops, and they're going to hang out there for a couple months, and you know, do Steel Beach picnic every day uh, ashore. So, anyways, they they were training uh, while they were down there. So by this time, we're definitely getting indications this is going to be something a bit bigger. So. Over to you, Boog. What are you What are you hearing at this time? So yeah, and so so September two thousand two. Like I said, we deploy. Um, we immediately get into OSW. Um, we I would say so all the capability. You know, Link sixteen. We talked about all that. Uh, just amazing package. And one thing we didn't have was uh, JDAM. So while we're doing OSW missions as a buildup, we start collectively. We I was involved with this. I know Grumpy was, and, and many squadron were really pushing hard back to the fleet. Or, sorry, back to the shore base units. And they were saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And, and my desire, of course, was was that we could get a JDAM off prior to an actual combat mission. But, you know, the way things were happening with OSW, uh, we were doing great work with TARPS. We were doing great work with our Lantern. Uh, but we were not actually dropping because the Air Force, JFAC, only wanted JDAM to be hitting these small, precise targets during OSW. And so, so OSW, Operation Southern Watch, Iraqi uh, operations, the Air Force is getting all the action because they have the capability to do GPS-guided JDAM, and we don't. No, I'll also say um, yeah. F-18, F-18s were getting all the action. In our well, why weren't, why weren't okay, LGBs correct. good yeah. enough? Yeah. Why weren't LGBs good enough? They're, they're so, not. Too, too, many, too many stories of... of people not delivering LGBs accurately enough for the very, very small, precise um, that is, relay blocks. So one thing that uh, uh, that Slim and Boog, Boog did is while this build was happening and everybody's starting to dis- decipher what they're going to do role-wise, he sends me into Al-Udeed and then I also go into Kuwait. And while I'm in Al-Udeed, I get an opportunity to start looking at what they call the Japital, which is the joint targeting list. And it is just filled top to bottom with JDAM only targets on day one. It's just yeah. JDAM. There's no LGB. There's Slam ER. There's JSAL. Um, and then there's just a bunch of JDAM targets. And I'm just like, we have got to do everything we can to, to play in this game. And, you know, granted that the A and the B can do JDAM, the D cannot. And we're, we make up about 15% of the entire naval you know, force that's going feet dry. So it's a smaller portion, but for us personally, it was a huge part and we're trying to get this. Now we, we sit down with one night with uh, Merck Fox, uh, Captain Fox at the time and uh, retiring as Vice Admiral Fox. Good dude. Great dude. And now he's got, you know, some scars from um, Desert Storm 1. And one of them being that the, that the Strike Eagle comes out with a new tape load and uh, right there at the beginning and they start dropping like murs off the wing or something like that. And so they're having, they, they get curtailed to doing anything. And so, um, Merck 
says, you know, I'm really reticent to try to allow you guys to put a tape load on the airplane because of the things that we saw in the past. And rightfully so. So you're saying that the Strike Eagle, when you say they're dropping MERS, you mean they're dropping the whole pylon? So the whole pylon was coming off the airplane. They're not. It wasn't a good thing. Yeah, it was a bad thing. I missed so, the, so the, bad thing that. the thing that holds the bombs was coming off of the airplane, and the bombs, of course, weren't armoring big, or anything like big that. Big difference. Okay, thanks. So it was a big, it was a big deal for the Strike Eagle, and he carried that forward, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he's like, I'm, sure. we're going to put a tape load in here that we're not supposed to really do this after Fallon. I'm, I'm nervous about it, and just like Boog said, man, we're, we're, call, I'm calling, I'm sending emails, I'm talking to people right and left that I shouldn't be. Um, chief of staff for air forces, uh, you know, um, won't say who it was at the time, but you know, it was an old (laughs) line and, you know, sending him, nobody can figure it out. Right. I'm showing him the Japibble. I'm showing him everything that says we're going to get cut out of day one, unless we do something. So back over to you, Boog. Yeah. So I'll just throw out. So for us, this is Grumpy's earlier comment. One, $1 of investment to bring a dollar 50 capability. We, we've got really good parts. We've got great availability. We've got 10 jets. Not all of them are on the roof. We had to fight to get more on the roof. And so this whole thing's coming together that we know, we're parochial, but we know that the F-14D is the most capable strike fighter on that deck once we get right. before. There's nothing that can touch it tactically. It can do everything better than anything else. Better than the Strike Eagle, better than any other Tomcat, better than the F-18C. And all of that pounding. I mean, it was it was full on, and it was frustration. It was pressure, and and we're we're frustrated because we're like, okay, we got to hit all these things perfectly. So I'll just be very quickly. All of this work ended up happening. So VX four, you know, went out and did a couple drops, good to go with D 4 They fly the tapes out to us, and we take all their jets technically down for a day, load them up. I can't remember exactly how we did it. But we basically, maybe we did them sequentially. Everything worked great. Brought so, so you're on the you're you're on deployment. We're at combat operations. I'm doing OSW, and not, you did a tape load, uh, a software tape load upgrade to the F-14 on deployment, and said launch into combat the next during, day. During exactly. Now here's here's what happened. I, I did. I if I remember that if that if I was aware of that at the time that escaped me. I do not remember that because that's significant. That's so huge. Crunch, Crunch, where were you in uh, in early 2003? Uh, I was in, I just got oh, to VF 31 oh, okay. or I was, in, I was in the rag going to VF 31. Okay. Yeah. All right. You yeah. went out there. Okay. No, I was, I was not in combat. I was, I was sitting on the sideline digging my heels and going, Damn, why am I not out there? And, uh, another story, but yeah, yeah. I was, I significant risk. Right. And this yeah. is, everybody did the right. Thing. I don't, I think you understate it when you say significant risk. <laughs> That's huge risk. Wow. So we, I'll, I'll, I won't speak for Grumpy. Well, I, I'll, I can tell you what I, Grumpy will say, but we saw, I saw it. I was the XO. There is no risk. We have to do this. This was not like, well, you know, on the other hand, we found out that if the, we put D04 in on the mission computer and things didn't work out, we can put D03B right back in. It's completely undo. You can undo it. It's oh, that's it, good. Okay, that's okay. good. So it's a one day, it's a one day switch back. Yeah, one so we shut down fly for a day. Of course, VX four comes out. I think I think it was um, fun. Yeah. Malay comes out from the weapons school. Yeah, drop it and then. Uh, so 
my XO, who we got out there earlier, Dave Burnham, Burner, he, I think, he and uh, uh, Donger, I think, actually did a fleet drop in our airplane, and they actually picked a piece of the water, dudded the bomb, and didn't have it go high order. So these are um, these are GBU thirty one V two JDAMs, two thousand pound JDAMs, and so that was it. We weren't correct me if I'm wrong, Grumpy. That was the only we only got flight clearance, you know, off of those two stations those two bombs. I don't think they cleared anything else. Is that right? So, so they got all four stations underneath uh, all we were cleared yeah, for. That's right. All four were cleared. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, so, and we had done the software for both the 500 and a thousand pounder too. Yeah. And that was, and that was a tongue Peterson thing that he pretty much wrote with, with the uh, test community, pretty much wrote what the software is going to look like in the F-14 D. So, I mean, he's our, he's my assistant ops. I mean, we're, we're basically two opsos working at the same thing. And so we got a guy who basically designed the, the SMS and he knew more about JDAM than any 10 people in a room. Um, he was extremely bright, knew everything about it. And then, you know, we had worked together plenty on, on getting D04 and what it was to the airplane. So, I mean, there were plenty of other experts in 31 also in 13, but, you know, talking to the guys that pretty much wrote the requirements for the F14D software. So we were, Comfortable. It was good to see Fun come out and give us a lot of background about the tape and all that other stuff. But you know, pretty much all the guys at VF2 were really familiar with what D04 was coming like. And that's Mark Malay, uh, call sign Fun. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we know him. Yeah, <laughs> he's been here. Yeah, he did the F14D uh, systems. So you guys have been patient. We haven't even gotten to bomb dropping yet, except we kind of got to the you know, to that point. But it's it's significant that the the up to finally get this amazingly capable aircraft ready for the first strikes. Um, it was a Herculean effort. We were four months into cruise probably by the time that all came together and we knew exactly what we were doing. We'd been, we had the luxury of flying there in OSW for four months and we knew the territory and we knew the process. And so we were, we were extremely ready to go. And then they, then they started transitioning us to the night page. So with that, I'll throw it over to you guys. And Well, so, so it sounds like we're, there's stuff going on and bombs have not yet started flying in theater, but you've got the tape load. You're ready to go. So we're dropped. Yeah. We had not dropped grumpy. Correct me if I'm wrong. We did not drop, uh, below, uh, 32 North yet until. No, No, we had done a lot of targets done a lot of on-call stuff, uh, leading up to that as far as OSW. so OSW strikes where it was like a reactive type thing, you went yes. and did that. But now yeah. all of a sudden we're like, okay, here, here's coming a mission. We've got a pre-planned strike. This is day one coming up. Here it is. Uh, what date are we talking about now? So, so, so March 21st, but about a week and a half prior, they transition our entire ship to the night, night page. So we become a night carrier. So about a week and a half, two weeks prior, we just start shifting everything back and back. So now our body clocks, we wake up. When it's dark, we become vampires. Yeah. Now, the uh, the thing to mention here is along the same way, same timeline is there are five airplanes that come off of Kitty Hawk and go to Al Udeed. And they're yep. doing that because they're going to support what they what is coined as Black Soft. And they're going to support this Black Soft effort for whatever they're going to do. And we're not too privy for that. But all of a sudden, on comes John Boy Walton, Goat Boy uh, Bates and Puck Howe, 
And they start briefing us that we're now going to help support that at the same time. So when you say five airplanes, you mean five Tomcats? Five F-14As from the Kitty Hawk. So is this Task Force 20? It's a part of a debt. Is that Task Force 20 or is that something Yeah, else? TF-20, TF Tiger. That's exactly what that was. Okay. Yeah. And so Guido Guyman, uh, so we have Weapon School, NSOC um, combined. Okay, so, so those guys do that, but let's – so what do you guys do in terms of OIF? I mean, let, I want to hear about this, the first day strike on OIF. So, so I'll, I'll start That's with that. That's a big story. Then, yeah. Okay. So uh, first first strike is, uh, let's just say, middle of the night. Uh, I I was uh, flying with uh, – so first of all, so, so what happens is, is there's the first strike, as CAG Fox is leading it, uh, I am part of an element. I'm a mission commander in an element underneath him. Uh, the second wave, I think Slim Whitson ran that second wave uh, as a skipper of VF2. And then the skippers all kind of lined up. So from, from a personal perspective for me on the very first night, and we're going to get into, I want Grumpy to actually talk about his um, his missions in a second too, because what they did was pretty uh, spectacular with the FAC A work. So the very first night, uh, there was a problem with uh, fouling a tanker. So our section uh, was actually a division of two Tomcat Ds and two F-18Cs. Ended up, for a variety of reasons, actually being the first section to penetrate what was referred to as the Supermez. Uh, so Baghdad uh, had a uh, so many surface-air missile sites that the, the rings actually were black around Baghdad. And there was a certain line where we knew that we were, quote, unquote, on government time. And we had to have electronic attack protection as well as harm protection to have a chance of getting in there and delivering our ordinance. So for a variety of reasons, uh, our warship was the first uh, non-stealth aircraft to penetrate. The, uh, the B-2s beat us over the target by about three minutes. They came all the way from the Midwest and went 180. We went... Uh, about three minutes later. The challenge that we had was that um, in uh, TLAM strikes had happened just previously. We saw them on our goggles. So kind of think of a lower cast layer and you could see the lights of Baghdad underneath. And then as the Calcum and the TLAM had come in, uh, you would still see secondary explosions going off. And, and so that's all on goggles. Uh, as we're headed towards the uh, target, the problem with the tanker situation, first of all, no one, when we're doing OSW and you're, you're talking to the AWACS and you're getting this and you're getting an approval for a strike, that all goes out the window because first of all, no one's talking to you. People are confused. I would say in the command and control world, the Hawkeye would talk to us, but we just realized that we were completely on government time and we were all talking to each other with airplanes. There was no, in my opinion, there was no overarching command and control. It was just good people making really good decisions. And that was the first night. There was visually, you could imagine, uh, uh, because we hit them right after the TLAMs and the Calcums hit, my opinion is that the surface-to-air missile site commanders just let it loose with a lot of unguided SAMs. Uh, that's the best way to say it. So what, what we didn't know, obviously we have raw gear on our airplane where we could hear what was coming, but it was, uh, let's just say it was pretty scary because there's launch after launch after launch. And so you have to analyze these coming up the same time you're approaching your target. 
thanks to the great work by the test community, um, our 2,000 pound, two 2,000 pound JDAMs did exactly what they're supposed to do. And we struck a target. Uh, so our, our aircraft got R2 off, our wingman F-18C did, positioning the other Tomcat and the other F-18C had some issues, but we they were able to strike their target. Uh, we struck our target. And as we were coming off target, and I'm using my hands to the right and accelerating, what's beautiful about having data link and a great radar is we could see the harm shooters that should have been there a lot earlier, uh, launch the harms kind of nose to nose because they were going to do everything they could and protect our back door. But that's pretty, uh, if, if, you, if you've not seen a harm launch on goggles, uh, it's pretty spectacular, particularly when there's a wall of, of hornets shooting them over the top of you. I'll say a couple of uh, uh, good things. One, um, F-16 CJs were at the right place at the right time. Uh, they Their tanker worked fine. They protected us. EA-6B uh, protected us. We needed two. We only had one. F-16 CJ is Wild Weasel. Wild Weasel, yeah. They did a great job. They harmed, and they were – so we were talking to our one prowler, our uh, four-ship of CJs, and our harm shooters were coming, and they were pumping, man. They were coming as fast as they can. They were screaming. They got gas somewhere else. Uh, they covered our back door. Long story short, JDM worked as advertised, successful strike. It was, it was um, pretty scary, to be honest with you. But then we realized in the in the heat of it that we're they're not guiding on us. Um, going aft on the canopy, uh, nothing got super close to us. It was more reactive, but it was it was pretty spectacular fireworks. So you guys, so how many days, weeks after this new tape load was put in the airplane, did you guys fly this mission? Is this like two weeks later? Two weeks, I'd say. Two weeks. So in that two weeks, you had burner go drop a bomb. Burner did it right. So test guys did it, uh, and then Burner and uh, uh, I think it was Hugh, Justin Hawk. Sue, Justin. Yeah. Okay. Justin. Okay, yeah. so those two guys did it. Nobody else in the squadron had had an opportunity to work the systems, figure out how to download the the waypoints into the bomb and look at the little shape on the P tid and say, "There it is. We're in," and get the speed. There it is. I mean, I, did you guys have the simulators that you could put on the, what was it, Station 4 or wherever it was? We, yeah. we, ahead, we didn't have the pucks uh, to do that with. Okay. Because like, we could simulate, like, had the shapes on there. We did Yeah, so, so there used to be a thing where you could put, basically trick the airplane into thinking it had a JDAM so you could go out and do practice rep practice reps and things and you guys didn't have that so you went into combat first time basically going all right we went to the whiteboard we got some markers it's gonna look like this you do that i do this let's go do it is that about the sum of it and yeah. now we're gonna shoot at you <laughs> so you got i'm just trying to lay the groundwork for how amazing it is that you guys did that pulled amazing. it off and you hit and you hit your targets right yeah, we were hyper-focused. So one of the things, the mission planning was, um, we had challenges where people would screw up, you know, no, no offense, but people would try to be smarter than the, um, smarter than they should have been and like, oh no, let's, so this whole teal, we'll go into the JDAM weeds too much, but you, know, you have target of opportunity mode and you have pre-JDAM pre and people, we, we had to figure this thing out. And, um, and we had, you know, guys from the weapons school to help us figure it out, but it was, it was dicey. There was, well, I do know one mission uh, folks launched on, and the one guy that did the bricks, they referred to as bricks, is what you load up. 
the software that you loaded up that had the mission planning into in it, right? Rick and uh, yeah. he he did it wrong for everybody, and we were just devastated because it was like, well, we can't. Well, we've I think we've all had that where you, you have that one guy who loads up all the bricks, and and the whole division is done. Like, oh, we're not mission capable now. Yeah, and so it's not intentional. Terrible. It happens. We, yeah. we I mean, we we all make mistakes, and and sometimes we. Assign it to that one guy, and, and then the TAMPS machine breaks, and you go, yeah. "Oh no!" So <laughs> I'm the tech rep who can fix the TAMPS machine. <laughs> I'm gonna throw it at a grumpy because um, realize we we all did great work those first few days with JDM, but then it's supporting the troops, and I I just want to do a shout out. Grumpy had an amazing mission. Uh, he and uh, go over to you, and it, it involved every every you guys. We're fat gay, so Grumpy's a fat gay. So Grumpy, is this where TF thirty comes in? Or TF twenty? I mean, I'm sorry, TF thirty. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's the TF twenty missions that we, we so a day is shock and awe day. So that's you know eight air day when we're gonna, when shock and awe happens. So the day did they, prior, did they call it shock and awe in two thousand three? Because I remember they called it shock and awe back in nineteen ninety one. It was that was the big nomenclature, shock and awe day. A day was shock and awe. That was what it was, across every you know, news organization was called shock and awe. So yeah, okay. anyways, uh, just prior to a day, um, the, we start working with the TF 20 guys. Um, and we go out to H three it's an eight and a half hour mission and we're, and they're going after, uh, w, WMD stuff, um, that's going to Syria. And so it's the, the guys off the Kitty Hawk that are dead out of IUD. It's us at VF two, uh, myself and um, John Boy Walton with him in my back seat, and then there's Spotty Oman and Tung Peterson and the other one, and we're we go out to H three, and we're protecting the the Black Soft guys that are going in there. That's Third Ranger Battalion, the Dev Grew, and 160th uh, Night Stalkers. We're supporting them as they're putting guys, inserting guys in, and then we're providing cover. They're doing a lot of the fact. They're doing a lot of the fact work from the ground. Um, and we're there as a backup to back them up. The big thing was the learning point was Mogadishu with everybody coming in after where they knew where this black soft was and what they wanted was us to keep that from coming in. And so when we went out to H3, you know, they're in certain guys different ways. And our job is to fly over top and provide protection. And we're, we're in dropping on targets that they're calling sent on. And it was funny because one day uh, or one part of the mission, there's a car coming down the road and they're like, somebody says, Hey, there's a car coming down the road. And the guy's like, well, take it out. And of course you have, you know, no less than six airplanes overhead. We're all blacked out. So nobody can see us. And everybody starts going for this one car driving down the road. And so there's guys rolling in, dropping LGBs. There's guys strafing on this thing. So uh, Tongue and uh, Spidey put this 500-pounder. And, of course, he's driving on the road really fast, and it hits just short. And so it hits just short, and all of a sudden this car just starts kind of slowing and coasting off to the side. And then four guys come running out of the car, kind of staggering back and forth. And I won't tell you what happened after that, but – um, it, that was just kind of a holy cow uh, moment. They did not want anybody coming in to the AOR um, during that time frame, and it was that <laughs> it was interesting to be blacked out with a bunch of a airplanes all circling overhead, swirling, trying to protect. And all time hits. What's that? Uh, there are 
four Tomcats and four Strike Eagles uh, wow. there. The Strike Eagles are the bomb truck, and the Tomcats are bomb trucks and also Fac A's to back them up oh, uh, cool. when they're when they're doing nice. that. Nice. So it, it is uh, a lot of work that had been coordinated ahead of time, and we'll talk about the Lake Tharthar mission that we did to try to get Saddam and his sons. We were also trying to get Spiker because we thought he was in there too, um, plus some WMD when we did the Lake Tharthar mission a couple of days after that. But I mean, that was one night, that was the closest I came from midair. We we're coming off uh, a tanker all blacked out at night, crossing over. And I have to remember that when we, we were working with TF-20, they stopped all of the operations and everything was there to support TF-20 and what they were doing. All of Iraq stopped. There was nothing going on but the support for, for those guys. So um, we were coming. We go get gas in Saudi. We turn around and we're coming back into Iraq. And, of course, there's a P3 out there supporting the operation. Well, I didn't see him. He didn't see me. And the only thing I saw going by was a little peephole and some guy looking at it. And I was <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, oh. oh. And uh, that was the that was one of those oh my god moments. Hey, we thought it would be fun to do an audience survey. We want to hear who were your favorite guests, what was your favorite episode, all sorts of great information like that. The survey link will be posted on Fighter Pilot Podcast Facebook page and also in the episode descriptions. And most important, you've got until August 11th, 2022 to participate in this survey. So tell us what you think. We can't wait to hear from you. You got to tell us about Lake Tharthar because Lake Crunch, you've seen the comments. Whenever they say they're going to come back to that, they never do. Yeah, we, so. yeah, we uh, I, I don't have a pen right now. Otherwise, it'd be like, we need to go back to that. And then the other yeah, thing tell is, us about that mission. Yeah, that's right. We got to talk about all that. So, okay. So day two, so our, our two days after a day, so shock and awe day plus two days. Um, there is thought that Saddam and his two sons are at this palace at the southeast end of Lake Tharthar. And also in that palace, just on the grounds, there is a seven-story underground storage facility that they believe WMD is either in there and or there's word that Spiker, Captain Spiker, is there and, and we're going to be able to go get him. Man. And so there's a lot riding on this mission. And so the, the mission begins and we're flying over the top of these guys at about 30,000 feet. And they're going in with uh, Little Birds, uh, which is a very small helicopter, DAPS, OH, which is an OH-6, right? Yeah, an OH-6. And then they have DAPS that are H-60 gunships, just totally loaded with everything. And then they have what we call the clown cars, which the H-47s are coming. The Chinooks are coming in and they're going to deliver you know, um, all these guys. And so we're going over a dam and we're trying and guys are picking things off right and left to make sure nobody knows that these guys are coming. Now, south of Lake Tharthar Palace is where the SSO lives. And that's uh, the special guard for Saddam and his sons. And so they're south about two clicks. And there's a big concern that those guys are going to come in while we're trying to do this operation. So that was a big thing that we were there for was try to keep people coming from the outside. And what they had done is they had drawn a couple of cons a couple of circles around like Tharthar Palace and then out a little ways and out a little further. And then the DevGru third ranger at 160th would take care of the inner, we'll call it the blue, blue circle. And then the gold circle was where the DAPs 
were supposed to work. And then white was where the uh, strike eagles and tomcats were supposed to work. And so they uh, go up uh, the west side of Lake Tharthar and then start coming back down the south end of Lake Tharthar around the corner, kind of past the SSO. And the skies just start lighting up on those poor guys. And so we're starting to try to pick stuff off to keep it. It's all unaimed fire. But this is a lot. The sky just starts lighting up on those guys. And there's, I won't get into all the support that was going on, but just rest assured that everything the U.S. had was supporting this mission. And so we're going in there and they go in and they drop the guys off and they go into the palace. They go into this uh what is a bunker complex seven stories down that they'd actually practiced this uh, out in the Nellis uh, range like four times. And because of the super meds on the fourth time, the best they could do was 50% survivability of all the air breathers and everybody else was. So it was, it, it and they was all wild. said, and they all said they'd still go. Oh yeah. And everybody said, we're still going because we're going to do this. And it was much less than what it was meant to be, but you know, when you sit down in the brief and they say 50% of you aren't coming back, you get a lot of, you know, kind of stares in the face of I don't want to go kind of thing. And we had a, a little bit of that, but um, it was great. We're just, we're, you know, knife in the teeth. We're going forward on this. And so anyways, um, the op goes pretty well. Um, I will say the H-47, the Chinook has just shot the snot, although we didn't lose anybody. Um, and we, there was nothing that we really got out of that mission other than some intel. We didn't get Saddam. We didn't get any WMD. And unfortunately, we didn't find Spiker either. But it, that was a high intensity. Once again, the entire place shut down to support um, Task Force 20 and what they were trying to do. And um, that was quite an honor to be able to, to do well, that. And then, that is amazing. It's an amazing mission. And, and Crunch, once again, this is a theme that comes out on a couple of our interviews, just the missions that we're talking about, the planning right. and everything else. You know, it's not just it's not just uh, operator skill and experience, but it's just the planning and missions. And, and Grumpy, that was a perfect example of one. But also the fact that the Tomcat was a key player. I mean, that's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it. you know, they, they ask us to participate because of the capability it brought to the table and the people that were working it, you know, Early on, you know, Guido and the guys at NSOC and Top Gun and all it, all those guys that had been working that stuff in the background, because there had been quite a bit of handshaking going on well before that with the special forces in Fallon, as you guys probably well know. And well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Kind of built from there. Established and was, relationships. And yeah. Yeah. So it was a fantastic. Uh, and then we got one more. Uh, we were we were doing a softening mission for. Baghdad International, which was known as Saddam International, they were going to, and they decided not to, they were going to insert a full brigade into um, Saddam International or Baghdad International Airport right in the middle of all this. And there it was 45 uh, C-130s and C-17s and this huge drop-down profile come in screaming and then land, and then they were going to put a one-star uh, with a brigade right in the middle of Baghdad. That was that was the future plan. They didn't have to because they were going so fast coming up the east and west side. They didn't have to. But that was the next mission we were going to do. And that was another big eye opener considering, you know, what the super meds was supposed to be. It didn't end up being that. I mean, with that many people, they would have needed an exchange, you know, a uh, 
golf course of course I mean, <laughs> I don't know if there was one there but somebody needed to come in with a with a brigade of just you know bulldozers to, to put up the golf course that's, that's right cool. <laughs> okay damn you guys and you guys are out here just doing this just day after day yeah. mission after mission i'll throw out a couple of stats so there, there was a really good. good article that came out in spring uh, i've got it here in front of me the tailhook magazine uh, spring 2005 edition. And so they got the official stats. So during 28 days of OIF, VF2, just our squadron completed 195 combat sorties, 887 hours. We had 10 aircraft. We dropped 221 LGBs. Uh, 217 of those were GBU-12s and four GBU-16s. Um, we dropped 61 JDAMs, GBU-31s. And we expended uh, 1,700 rounds of 20 Mike Mike. And I know... Um, Torso was one. Grumpy, were you also strafing? Oh, yeah. I, I had all kinds of fun strafing. Yeah, yeah. so strafing that, as well. And then, that's 10 uh, bombs a day between JDAMs and... and uh, yeah, we were, we dropped... I don't that, remember, and I hate saying stuff base. like this, but we, we dropped more bombs than anybody had ever done. And, you know, I think it had done since then in one squadron and one deployment since, you know, pre-Vietnam. And we dropped a lot of ordnance. And I probably have that wrong, but it was, it was full on. I'll also throw a couple things... Um, you know, talking about the bravery, I'll talk about other people. Um, those those missions, those FAC-A missions where we weren't sure if they were coming back, you know, that's legit. Um, it was pretty, I was in the briefs. You had to get, you know, cleared to, to, to see that. But pretty, uh, pretty, pretty ballsy uh, stuff there from those guys. Uh, my pilot, Webster uh, Frankenberg, I didn't mention him earlier. I uh, flew with him. I flew with Grumpy some uh, a lot before the deployment. Webster was my primary pilot. He was phenomenal. Uh, and of course, the skipper slim, CAG, DCAG, so great folks. I, I also was just going to say that the uh, we supported ground. So those of us that were not doing, um, you know, the Lake Tartar and stuff, after the initial JDAM drops, we dropped a lot of, as you heard, LGBs. We were supporting the forces all the way up to Baghdad and when we got to Baghdad. So we were talking to guys. We were doing a lot of SCAR missions, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, on call. Uh, we've talked about that. What's SCAR again? So... so Retained armed reconnaissance, I think it is. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, retained armed reconnaissance. So, so think of it as uh, not not pure CAS per se, but we were uh, we were supporting troops in vicinity. Uh, So special ops guys overlook, see stuff they'd have, they'd call us on targets, and Grumpy had a lot of fun. I think we Webster and I found a found a really big airplane that he couldn't see, the guy on the ground couldn't see, and so he was trying to talk us with the LGB onto some gun positions and so it's around an airport and you know it's hard right on the flare trying to figure out orientation somebody you've never worked with before blah 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 it's confusing so i say in relation to the large aircraft on the apron you know how many that using that's one unit of measure how many units of measure and he basically says what what large aircraft on the apron <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like a 730 it wasn't a 737 but it was you know pretty big transport and he's like stand by comes back and he goes, uh, uh, take out that aircraft. And so take I take out that aircraft. Yeah, that, now that's some, that's and you were just using it as right a measure. Yes. So say again, sorry. You were just using it as a reference point. And he yeah, goes, I, I see it. He couldn't see it from his position. He repositions. And then I turn the tape on and say, say that again. <laughs> and he goes, take out that aircraft. So we got it on tape. Okay. You know, that's the typical aviator, like for yeah. a commercial airliner. 
I want to CYA. So the funny story is, is so I still remember showing Grumpy that tape and Grumpy's a very competitive guy as we all are. And he goes, uh, you know, awesome. I think Grumpy a week later, you guys took out an airplane that was slightly bigger. Look at this. We're, we're comparing it to the, yeah. to the ground equipment. This one's bigger. You know Grumpy? I still remember that. You guys found one that was slightly bigger. I was like, ah, there we go. XO. We got you. <laughs> yeah, that was a Antop An one twenty, so it was an enormous, enormous airplane, and uh, that is a big airplane. Bob in the back seat, we had the ability to turn off the the symbology for the lantern, so you you had all the all the stuff lat longs and the mass curve and the SAI dot and on the north Q and all that other stuff, but you hit a little button and it took all that away, so you could see a nice clean picture. So so Bob's like, oh yeah. I'm going to have this one. There's not going to be anything in the way. So he turns off the uh, the symbology over the top of it. I'm, I kind of get a little bit nervous. And no kidding, the GBU-12 goes right through the center spar of the thing. It was pretty spectacular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still remember yeah. showing this tape going like, you know, ours is bigger. And it was like, well, I got <laughs> <laughs> Way to go. Way to go. Okay, I got two, I got two go. dumb questions. Crunch, you going to remember yours? Or go ahead. I wrote mine down. No, I was going to ask it for you. <laughs> oh, no, I'll go for it. Two dumb questions, and, and you guys can uh, decide, uh, take it real time. One, was there, especially early on, was there any consideration for the air threat? Uh, and two, did you ever uh, attain a level of comfort or even complacency flying these combat missions day after day? So, uh, the first one is the air threat, Iraqi air threat. And by 2003, were they there? Did, did yeah. you guys, were you? OSW, they were flying around up north. I mean, right. I remember OSW and and all that. So when OIF starts off, did they did they launch against Stop. you? Or? Yeah, okay. no, they stopped. Grumpy, over to you. You agree? Yeah, there was absolutely no air air activity. There was a few helos running around, probably doing. Were you carrying? Runs. Were you just carrying a sidewinder or a couple of a sparrow and a sidewinder? So Boots first night, they they carry two sidewinders and a phoenix with the bombs. So we had right. a phoenix on board because you can put uh, the phoenix the on the wing station and carry the yeah on the left and then uh, flare on the right. So there's one. And then after that day, we, we just went down to two sidewinders and that was it. All right. Cool. There's a, there's another really cool mission that went, went on that I want to talk about. There's a, we had set guys out on a tarps mission, right? So if you look in the book, a tarps, you're allowed to carry a couple of dumb bombs in the front. So we sent uh, a couple of, we sent a section of our JOs out and they're doing a tarps they're doing a tarps uh, run, try to try to get good information, and then at the end of that, there is a Brit fac that wants to bring them in because he knows that they they're on the ATO with some weapons. So we have two we have two JO crews. Uh, Crack Matheson uh, is with um, Tammy Faye Baker, and then Justin Sue is with I don't remember who he was with, but anyways, um, Killer Kalari. And so those guys come in over the top. It's Saddam Hussein's personal ship. And in the port of Basra. In the port of about this story. Yes. This is his personal ship. And um, they had a, a S3 come in, had an F-18 come in, and, and they weren't able to hit it. And then they uh, brought in an S3, and he shot uh, an LMAV. I think it was LMAV. And they, and they hit it. And it was still standing, and they wanted this, they wanted that thing to go down. So – no kidding, our guys with two Mark 82s apiece um, on the aircraft with a tarps pod on the back end of it 
roll in on Saddam's ship and sink it. And they hit exactly what they aimed at. That airplane was an amazing bomber. Okay, so um, these were these were unguided Mark 82s? Dumb totally out. unguided Mark 82s. And these guys put it right down the, the chute, right exactly oh. where the two of them picked the front, two of them picked the back, and they sunk that thing with awesome. four Mark 82s. <laughs> it was awesome. I mean, it was one of those, hey, why don't we, just because we can, why don't we put a couple of dumb bombs on there? I mean, they're never going to drop, but we'll see. And And, of course – it was it was great to see those guys go out there and do it and do it right. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> okay. Other missions, they'd send us up to kill box and just go, just go right and go up to a kill box and check in. And so your complacency question, yeah, there was yeah. never never complacency. Like every it was every mission was different, or you would get refragged. You would go up and think you're going to do the to Grumpy's point. These guys did the Tarps mission. When they're taking pictures, oh no, you're going to now bomb Saddam's yacht. I mean, it was there was never an ounce of complacency, at least from my mindset. It was like full on uh, every every time. How about the Iraqi uh, surface air threat? Was were they continuing to shoot? I mean, you guys were in combat. You said for 28 days. So so think of it as um, we're supporting the troops up. Saddam uh, Baghdad falls. I'm going to make this up. April 16th, something like that. Right. Uh, at that point, you know, no more concern of surface air threat. We were concerned about going down low with, you know, when, whenever we were troops in contact, absolutely. Yeah. But it was a calculated risk. We had a hard deck of 10, but we all decided if there's troops in contact, we're coming down, right? Grump is the right way to say it. I mean, if there's, yeah. there's guys that need absolutely. we're coming. Absolutely. We, we definitely said, hey, if you're going below 10,000 feet, you better be doing business because there's no trolling. Uh, although – one of the best missions I had there, we kind of, we did a show of force and that was, it was actually fun. Probably one of the funnest things I got to do while I was there, surprisingly. <laughs> show of force is basically a low level flyby to show everybody that you're there, scare them away. Yeah, there was a bunch of people that were raiding the the um, ammunition bunkers at one of the airfields. And the army guy, his idea, the facts idea was to drop a bomb somewhat close by all these civilians and scare them away. And I'm like, eh, don't really want to do that. And so how about a flyby? So, you know, we load the old Tomcat up and there, I mean, there probably are 50, 75 cars and a ton of people and all these things, you know, trying to not just ammunition, but other food and everything else in this. And so we go ripping by just, you know, we're not casting much of a shadow. Let's just put it that way. And we were, we were supersonic when we went by and it was spectacular, except immediately coming off the flyby right in front of me was a Marine Corps helicopter that we had to go underneath to get, get around. <laughs> Holy bejesus out of me. And, uh, but just turn around and seeing all these people in car accidents trying to get out of the out of the base and running all over the place like a bunch of little ants and everything like that. It was funny. We didn't hopefully hurt anybody, but um, it was it was pretty spectacular. It was fun. 
I'm just imagining being the, the helicopter pilot as a, as a Tomcat goes supersonic underneath me. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were a little worried about, I hope they're okay. But we didn't hear I'd be more worried. concerned about him than anybody on the ground. I'd be like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> it was kind of just one of those, oh, my God moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, let's try not to hit him and then hope for the best. Yeah. Golly. So you got, how long were you guys in theater there? How long were you guys in combat ops? Well, I'd yeah, say. Is that two months, three months? Yeah. No, no. No, two, Less than that? two months max. So it was started in late March, and Baghdad fell. I think it was around April sixteenth, and we were. Yeah, you, oh you wow! The Taylor article said twenty eight days, right? Yeah, twenty eight yeah. days. Wow! I didn't. Days. You know, I'd forgotten it was that fast. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, basically they call it like a hundred hour war. Yeah, you know? I remember it being fast, but I just don't remember it being less than a month. Holy cow! It yes. was. It went super fast, and um, you know. Even though it was like three weeks, we did everything. I mean, Gob and I got to do an RMC mission for some helos that are down. We're cast support. We're, you know, doing JDAM. Uh, you know, the only thing we didn't do was air to air. What's RMC again? Uh, rescue Mission Commander. So we got to go, you know, take care of some a helo that had gone down. And we had gone, got around to be able to get those guys picked up. So that was fun. That's cool. Man. Hey, I got to do yeah. one plug for the uh, maintenance maintenance guys. So, so the jets were great, right? Thank you. Yeah. The, the jets were, I mean, everything was just, I mean, people were just working their asses off, right? I mean, it was incredible availability. I, I don't think I ever missed a sortie. Uh, I don't, I can't remember what our sortie completion rate was, but it was. It was 98. We had a 98% sortie completion rate. And if you were to go back and it beat everybody else, it beat all the Hornets, it beat everybody on the boat, 98. And the Tomcat is not easy to work on. And it was a, a big thanks to not only Fitwing and then Slim and Boob to recruit these guys, but they were recruiting within themselves all the, all the good people. And I know the other Tomcat squadrons enjoyed similar success, but you have to be a significant artisan to know how to work on the airplane. And we had full FMC jets, not like just things that just, it kind of worked and all. We're talking hard up airplanes every night, every every day. We were only allowed six airplanes on the roof um, where the Hornets were allowed nine to 10 and we only had 10 airplanes. And they said, oh, we'll have two other airplanes um, on, um, on the number four elevator waiting. And so when you guys leave, then we'll bring those others up. Well, that doesn't always end up happening. And so we had to go six for six every night, you know, uh, at, I don't know, just throughout the night. We had to go six for six. Yeah, we were able to bring a onesie twosie up, but that's how well done the maintenance was while we were there. And I'm sure your troops were just fired up when you guys got back, when you were launching. I'm sure they they were just proud as hell to be there and part of the war effort. So I'll just throw out. So Connie, great ship. Uh, Fozzie Miller ended up retiring as a three-star, awesome skipper. I did. Uh, I did take on the six as the XO, but took it on uh, because I I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to protect my skipper, um, and, and I took it took it on. And uh, I, I, I called up <laughs> called up to the bridge to have a one-way conversation, uh, but I was fighting hard to get more than six on the roof. We we never did it. I felt that that was a shame. I felt that we had the ability. Um, to have at least eight, eight up there, you know, with two in the hangar bay, we could have done more work and it's not for us. I mean, we're in combat, we're getting our sorties, we're all that stuff. For me, it was about, 
don't, I don't want to say winning the war because that wasn't really ever in question after a couple of days, but all that, think of all that work and effort to get that carrier on the pointy edge. And we have four great assets down the hangar bay, how frustrating that is. And so for me, it was like an inefficiency. It's like, if you know, I'm running a business today, it's like, Hey, let's be efficient. You know, what did it take to get all of that in place? And why are we not maximizing that carrier capability? I think a lot of it uh, came out of, you know, the chaos. There's, there's, you know, Mongo just pawning game of life to use in, uh, a reference from a movie. But, you know, it was frustrating for us. And, and I, I think I took that's the first Blazing Saddles quote we've had in the entire uh, yeah. run. Of the yeah, as it should be. Tried. But, but I, you know, I, you well, know, I felt like it was a battle, battle worth taking on. And, and Fozzie was right. And I was wrong. But I gave it a shot. It was kind of fun getting called to the bridge and told, you know, start coloring, keep flying. Fozzie and I were in the same class at uh, Pensacola. Yeah, he's a great guy. He is a good guy. He did the right thing. I did the right thing. Everybody's happy. We moved on. Good stuff. Good stuff. So what are you guys doing now? Boog, what are you up to? So, so I'm still heavily involved in naval aviation. Interesting enough, Hey Joe Parsons uh, actually is one of my part-time employees, which is pretty cool. He's, so one your, oh, he's one of your what? Part-time employees. So I run a company oh. called Go Aspire. Uh, we have uh, been doing it full-time since 2015. We just won a NAVAIR contract to add a GPS to a laser-guided training round. Uh, so we're hopefully in the near future, we'll have, you know, go back to those JDAM stories we just talked about, give warfighters more training, uh, end-to-end training with GPS weapons at a fraction of the cost of the real ones heavily involved with mission planning uh, for naval aviation and a uh, bunch of classified work. We um, got eight, eight pilots supporting Boeing. I've got six folks supporting Lockheed Martin. Uh, the Boeing pilots are flying QF-16s uh, for their drone program and uh, they're part-time W-2s for Coast Bar, their Air National Guard pod. So got 33 folks. I've grown it, uh, you know, look at employee number one, uh, love it every day, but I'm, I'm, I'm still, well, let's just say actively involved in naval aviation. I'm one of these guys who never kind of took the uniform off. So that's what we're doing here. Awesome. That sounds like that sounds incredibly productive. Yeah. I, mean, you know, I see you on LinkedIn all the time. I'm always proud to think I know that guy. No, no, it's good. It's just, it's exciting. It's just, oh, yeah, you know, you're doing a lot of great stuff, man. Trying to do good stuff. Yeah. I'm one of these contractors. They always say when we're at, we're all, when we're all active duty. It's like contractors feel like they're part of the fight. And I was like laughing, like they're not part of the fight, you know, but, that's what we try, right? So yeah, it's what you think when you're young, and then you you right. you you're, you get on the other side, and you're like, actually, I am part of the fight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's right. Grumpy, grumpy. I, grumpy. So uh, I think you and I, I know what you're doing. Tell everybody else what you're doing. So when I uh, left in 2017, um, the first thing I did was, like Boog, try to pay back a little bit uh, to the naval aviation. So. I was fortunate enough to get picked up uh, by the simulator instructors over in uh, Oceana. So I was a uh, F-18 simulator instructor. And then just as I was getting on there, I got picked up by Southwest. And then um, after that, I was still working the simulators and doing Southwest. And and then a fantastic company called ATAC, um, uh, Mother Hubbard running, running ATAC, so the F-18 guy was a uh, Fantastic. And a great group of guys over at ATAC. I got to fly with them for a little bit. And then I had an opportunity to join uh, UPS on the management side of the house and still get to fly and do what, so, you know. So what uh, were you flying at ATAC? I flew the Hawker Hunter. 
Um, and they had the Kefir and now they have the F1. Is the Hunter a sweet airplane? I mean, it's like a classic, I know, but it, it um, I'm, I'm Be not, careful. We, don't, we don't want to piss off all the, all of our Brit fans that are uh, watching. So. No. Um, so uh, late fifties airplane, it has late fifties technology, single engine airplane, somewhat. How does it fly? Pardon me. How does it fly? Um, it, it is, uh, I, I'm not, you know, super experienced in a lot of airplanes. It's the one airplane that I've flown in my life that I had to really pay attention. Oh, interesting. It, I really had to pay attention to fuel uh, was first and foremost, and then keeping an eye on hydraulics and everything like the fuel probably being the biggest one. And the only airplane I've ever flown that when you turn in, make a, an angle bank and you start pulling G's, you actually have to take the stick and move it forward to mm. keep it from overstressing because it does a little tuck. Um, when you're kind of pulling an airplane. So you have to be really careful of that. But fantastic uh, um, airplane when it comes to doing the job that ATAC does, and that's supporting the fleet. Okay. Um, they do, you know, red air, but plus then they go fly against uh, the fleet itself during uh, the workup cycle and stuff. Uh, so that was it, was, it was great. And then the opportunity I had at UPS uh, doing the management side, unfortunately precluded me from continuing with uh, ATAC, but what a great organization they are. Yeah, that's cool. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, so this story arc that we've had over this this discussion the last hour and a half has been incredible. We've had some great stories. I'm sure there are some things that we should have asked you about. Is there anything that you can think of right now that we did not ask you about that you want to you think we should have we should have talked about? Nothing at all. Okay. So Book Luke, tell us where you got your call sign because, because, you know, we got people around the world. They don't know who Boog is. Yeah. Yeah. So my, uh, my first went right into the fleet, right on cruise. I was a uh, DJ and then we came off a cruise and the intermediate. Was your first call sign DJ? Yeah, it was DJ. DJ for the fire, for fire, entire first deployment. We come off of, uh, deployment and it's uh, intramural softball season at Oceana and I hit one over the fence. I was a decent softball player and uh, and I kind of looked like a baseball player from the Baltimore Orioles uh, named Boog Powell. And so I hit another home run and they're basically like, it's freaking Boog Powell, it's Boog. And, and I, of course, like, oh, I hate that, uh, whatever. And I'm <laughs> done. Okay. I, looked up, I looked up Boog Powell after I met you and I go, Damn, that does look like it. So <laughs> I see the relationship. So yeah, that was it. And uh, you know, it, 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 I'll make it very short. When I uh, so then I go to Oce- I go from Oceana to Miramar, and there was another boot pal that was a rag instructor. He was a reservist, so he didn't like the fact that in the squadron in VF one twenty four there were two instructors with pulse like boot. So because I had not been over the line, uh, the equator, I was a slimy polywog, and as an Oceana guy showing up. In Miramar, all my fellow instructors were trusty shellbacks, which is means they've been over. So he tried to change it to WOG, and it stuck around a little while at 124. And finally, uh, unfortunately, I know it's horrible when I say this, but he uh, he, he died in a Tomcat accident. Uh, <laughs> that spin. And um, so there were two yeah. boots, and uh, then there was one. And I actually was mowing my lawn the day after he died uh, at Miramar, and I uh, had a guy stopped the car and went, holy shit, I thought you died yesterday. And it's like, yeah, I appreciate it, but no, it was the other boot. But the other, uh, wow. wow. 
Okay, well, that's a great, great hey, guy. Let's... He was a reservist at that. He was a, a Sal. Ah, very sad. That is shit. But yeah, it happened, no man. Grumpy. Were you always yeah. grumpy? I have always been grumpy. Uh, I started out in the training command. Um, guy by the name of Captain Giant Snyder. Giant was his call sign because he got really big at the club. Um, and he was a little short dude. Great, great guy. But he was a little short guy. And when he gets to the club, he got really big. So hence the giant call sign. Super guy. And uh, he he one day we're out uh, bombing in, uh, in the A4. And at the end of that, you strafe. And and so I rolled in to strafe. And the A4 invariably, um, it just had a single gun. It wasn't a Gatling gun. So it was a single gun. And it it, it would go, you know, chunk, 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 chunk. Well, it, it was the first time I ever did it. And it went chunk and jammed. And I didn't know that. I'm like, what's going on? And then I see the bullet in front of me spray the sand in front of me, hit it. And I just, I, at that point in time, noticed that we were rapidly going to hit the ground. Uh, snatched on a pole, 7.2 Gs, overstressed the airplane and the instructor in the back seat. you know, was a great guy. And, um, you know, another one of those, oh my God moments. Uh, and went back to the uh, ready, went back to the ready room, doing the debrief, sat in the corner, sucking my thumb, um, you know, mad as heck at myself. Uh, and giant, you know, along with a few other things, called me a grumpy MMMM uh, with a bad attitude. So we had to cut out all the other stuff with a bad attitude. And then uh, as I went through my career, I was kind of always known as a guy that, you know, in the cockpit, I didn't put up with much uh, of buffoonery from other people. So I get a little animated. So the name just kind of like never went away. That's good. <laughs> I remember... Uh, um, you know, the guys you got ahead for the uh, demo, uh, Ponch Rivera was in my back seat and his first ride at VF2. He's with me doing FCLPs and we're about halfway through FCLPs. And Ponch, in his own way, comes up on the radio and goes, Why do they call you grumpy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, I think that pretty much explains Because <laughs> if, if you're not complaining uh, as an aviator, you're not happy. So, anyways, that's where it. That's where that came from. Oh, that's awesome. I know we're going to up. One thing I was going to think of, and I didn't say it. So there were, there were incredibly talented pilots, flew the F-14D, Grumpy, clearly top five. I, I got to see most of them. And uh, he, you know, top top hook repeatedly, top everything. And just um, just, an, just knew, not only knew that airplane, but a professional aviator. Uh, he would teach ACM to the, um, you know, if I'd be flying with a young guy in my front seat, Grumpy is like, was just a phenomenal teacher of uh, ACM. It could, it could actually talk, was talking on the radios, uh, which is kind of rare telling guys when they were making mistakes during one V one while he's under G is it, it just a extremely talented fighter pilot. And I, I just wanted to get that out there. Um, you know, Thanks, Boo. That's very nice. And that, that's, a, that's a very good, uh, I mean, that specific observation, that's, uh, that's yeah, a really, really spectacular, talented individual. I, you know, I, it, it just takes, you know, he, he asked for, you know, nice clean bills. It wasn't, uh, you know, just a check <laughs> like that. Clean yeah. bills. That love. Make them you know, right, right back at him for, you know, obviously given, you know, the one thing we didn't talk about was how we did crew pairing and then how we were able to work in the squadron. You know, Boog and Slim both uh, gave their department heads the space and, and breadth to do their thing. And, you know, stuff coming up like, 
hey, I have a great idea. The JOs are all fly, going to fly with themselves. And then the department heads and COs and XOs are going to fly with each other. And so, you know, like we're going into combat. And who's going to allow that to happen? So, you know, Boog and Slim uh, allowing us the room and breadth to make our own mistakes and, and do our own thing. And, you know, out of all that, it was, you know, getting to learn leadership through him and, and people like Slammer and stuff like that. You just try to emulate those people as best you can. And, and, you know, you just hope that you can live up to that. So, I mean, it, those are, those are very kind words, but probably the, the biggest thing from that is I, I just wanted to make sure everybody around me was, you know, if they could be better than me, that that's what it was all about. And Naval aviation has gone to such great lengths to, when you walk in to a ready room and you go into the debrief, you check your attitude at the door and you put everything out there. The civilian world has no idea. And I know that there's plenty of people trying to teach that, but there's no, I'm not, uh, you know, the guys who were guarded and didn't want to display their mistakes, which, you know, I was the first guy to the board and said this, I made, I made this mistake. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. And you opening yourself up to criticism and then making yourself better for the next flight yep. was everything that I was taught and then tried to teach everybody else. It's like, Guys, check your attitude at the door. Come in and let's make ourselves better as a team. And, and Brad Elward identifies that as something that came about in the late 60s as naval aviation transitioned from the days when, when you had a few guys who were ass kickers and they were just like, I'm going to kick your ass because you're a new guy. And then by the late 60s, they realized we got to start teaching the young guys instead of just beating up on them. So, but it is, that is a very good observation about naval aviation. And, and, and I perceived it uh, from when I started flying in uh, 19, you know, joined the fleet in 81. So cool. Yeah. Well, very, okay. very much enjoyed that. I mean, I'm just, we could, we could go for another two hours probably, but uh, you guys have covered more than I expected to get out of this. I mean, like, you know, Crunch and I always have our notes and stuff and yeah. you guys covered one the background information that we started with was just incredible, very insightful, uh, a lot of who's who of naval aviation, but also not only the people, but, you know, like you just were talking about the principles, the commitment, et cetera. So um, Grumpy and Boog, thanks to both you guys for, for taking the time to prepare and uh, spend the afternoon with us on the F-14 Tomcast. Crunch, I'll give you the last word this time. Well, I, all I, well, thanks, Bio. I appreciate it. And I would just like to say, Boog and Grumpy, thank you both. Gentlemen, this has been an amazing experience. We'd love having you guys on board. Yeah, I think the audience is going to love the uh, love the stories. And thanks for joining us. So you guys get the last word. Hey, appreciate it. I, I loved uh, loved every day in naval aviation. Uh, best community, best people. And, you know, I, we didn't list all the names of the people we flew with in VF2, but they know who they are and they're phenomenal and, you know, slim and uh, department heads and the JOs. And then, of course, the maintenance department was phenomenal. So I just want to throw out to them again. They, we don't talk a lot about them. We talk about our yeah uh, ourselves, but uh, the folks around us made it all happen. Well, that's, yeah. a, that's a great point. Fantastic opportunity. And, and I really thank thank you guys for, you know, putting the Tomcast together. It's, it's great. And then you get to see the names and the faces the people who made it all happen. I mean, the airplane was a fantastic airplane, but it wouldn't have been nearly the legend it was if it wasn't for the people that were flying. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate you. 
everybody else appreciates you all as well. And thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the F14 Topcast. You've been listening to the F-14 TomCast, part of the Air Combat Experience, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at F-14TomCast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101, extension 3. That's 877-622-4101, extension 3. For updates on this podcast and our other military aviation-themed shows, Visit BVRPro.com and follow the Air Combat Experience on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.